Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast about the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast. My name is Madison Legali, and today I'm joined by my fellow medical student, Leah Sultanem, as well as our guest speaker, Dr. Zung Vo, a pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist working at the British Columbia Children's Hospital. He's also associate professor at UBC's Faculty of Medicine, and his clinical and academic work revolve around fostering resilience among young adults. Today, he'll be discussing mindfulness for teens, why it's important, how it's done, and the observed impact of this practice on young adults. So hi, Dr. Vo, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay. So let's begin with our discussion of the importance of mindfulness in young adults. So um, the first question is, being a teenager is an incredibly stressful time. It's a time of self-discovery and questioning on many different levels. And so with this population in mind, why is mindfulness such a valuable and important tool for young adults especially? I think one of the most important developmental tasks for adolescents and young adults is learning how to manage stress. It's not something that you're born knowing how to do, it's a skill. And adolescence and young adulthood is the time to practice and learn that skill, especially because, uh, as you mentioned, that's a time in life that is very stressful. There's all kinds of challenges. Uh, That is a time when a lot of mental health symptoms arise and mental health disorders arise. uh, And that is also uh, a time when uh, emotions get stronger because of the way the brain develops. Adolescents and young adults experience emotions in a different way than than children. Um, So if adolescents can learn how to manage stress, manage difficulties uh, through coping skills and practices such as mindfulness, not only mindfulness, but mindfulness is a powerful one, then it can set the stage for lifelong health, lifelong healthy behavior, lifelong healthy coping, which can have all kinds of benefits uh, throughout adult life and, and in, into future generations as well. So it's a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous window of time where uh, we can really set a positive direction for a young person. Yeah, I definitely agree. And in terms of this population specifically, what would you say makes mindfulness particularly challenging for them to initiate, to become interested in, and to actually perform themselves? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because it's not always actually that difficult. I think there's an assumption that, uh, you know, teenagers don't want to do this and that it's so hard to teach teenagers. And that's why actually for decades, no one was really teaching teenagers mindfulness. Uh, but I'm an adolescent specialist. I love working with teenagers, and I found that it's actually in some ways easier than teaching adults. Uh, I think the challenge is is finding what is relevant to teenagers about mindfulness, really helping them to see how how does this apply to my own life rather than it's something that you know old people do or monks do or something like that. But I think once teens see the relevance in their own lives, then it's actually quite easy to teach them. They get engaged, they get motivated, uh, and it's really a joy to work with them on that. Great. Thank you for sharing. And um, in terms of young people who may be experiencing additional stressors that converge with puberty, so things like parental separation, divorce, financial hardship, um, addiction, teenage pregnancy, for example, are different approaches required to address these challenges more specifically? Certainly we do teach mindfulness to teenagers differently than, than I would to adults. Uh, and our, our mindfulness course, as well as my kind of informal or clinical mindfulness teaching is geared towards teenagers. 
Uh, it's not so much about the specific challenge that they're dealing with so much though, um, but it's more how do I use mindfulness in the context of this challenge? How do I use mindfulness in this situation? So mostly what we teach are, the, are very similar mindfulness practices that we would teach to adults, both formal and informal mindfulness practice. We tailor it to teens. Um, usually they're, they're shorter practices, for example. The language is a little bit different. Um, but then we spend a lot of our time discussing how are we going to use this in that real life situation. So at school, uh, when I'm having uh, test anxiety and my mind goes blank, uh, at home when I'm getting in a fight with my mom or with my brother or sister, or after school when I'm getting in an argument with my, my boyfriend or girlfriend, or on the sports field when I'm feeling really stressed out or angry about what's happening. So really it's a matter of using these foundational mindfulness practices, applying them to real life situations that teenagers are, are challenged with. And, and the best uh, teaching is actually when teenagers are teaching themselves. They're very creative uh, and they figure out ways to use these situations in practical situations uh, and, and then they start to teach each other. And in those cases, uh, they come up with their own solutions. And all I'm doing is actually really supporting, encouraging and providing that space for them to come up with their own solutions and teach each other. Yeah, thank you. I think it's really amazing. It must be an amazing experience to be able to participate and work with these this population specifically, as you were saying. Um, and I think it does go to show that mindfulness is sort of this universal practice that doesn't really need to be too, too specifically tailored for people. It's really adaptable and um, universal. Yeah. Um, so we know that evidence shows that mindfulness-based interventions have the ability to change the brain. Uh, so the gray matter in the amygdala controlling the fear response will shrink, and the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for problem solving and planning, will thicken. But the evidence on the effects of mindfulness on the developing brain isn't as well established. Um, so we're curious to know what kind of evidence you might be familiar with um, about mindfulness and its impacts on the developing brain, so in, in young adults. Well, we know that the brain is developing tremendously and that the connections between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic areas are really growing. And the prefrontal cortex in particular is really growing during that time period. And we also know that neural networks um, are strengthened if they're used. Um, so, you know, neuroscientists have this, this saying, what fires together, uh, what wires, what fires together, wires together, right? So the, the networks that are used uh, uh, tend to grow. And then also during adolescence, networks that are not used are pruned. That means they disappear and that, that allows the adoles adolescent brain to get much more efficient and much faster. And we also know what drives the pruning and what drives the neural networks wiring together is repeated life experience, especially during adolescence. So the adolescent brain is exquisitely sensitive to life experience and in particular social experience. Uh, what we don't know is how something like mindfulness will affect that directly. So we can hypothesize that mindfulness is a repeated experience. Uh, mindfulness meditation means that we fo follow our breathing or we follow some other object of our meditation over and over and over and over again. Uh, and we do that when we have an emotion, when we have stress, when we have anxiety, depression, fear, pain, whatever. Uh, so we can hypothesize that the repeated practice of mindfulness ex experience, mindful practice associated with that distress, that pain, that emotion could help the prefrontal cortex and the regulatory areas uh, connect 
with the limbic areas where those emotional experiences are being activated uh, and help the regulatory areas uh, strengthen their connection with those limbic areas. Uh, now, we don't really have the research yet to prove that uh, in terms of neuroimaging and those kinds of things. So I think the research is, is very new. In fact, even in adults, it's pretty recent that we've been seeing some of those changes that you're talking about. Um, so I would hypothesize that these changes that we see in adults would be even more pronounced in teenagers because of the neuroplasticity and because of what we know about brain development. Uh, but I haven't yet seen the actual MRI uh, studies to show that yet. No, and it'll definitely be exciting when that research starts to come out. Um, and so what we were talking about, I, I guess, essentially is that these neural networks that do govern um, our decision-making, our moods, our, our social interactions, they are incredibly plastic, especially in our younger years. Um, and so I guess, would you agree that mindfulness would therefore have a much greater impact when it is initiated in people's younger years? I would expect it to, I, and I would hope it does, um, but uh, we, we can't, I can't prove that with an MRI yet, <laughs> but, it, but it, should. it should. All right, so now that we have a bit of a better appreciation for the value of a mindful practice in a teenager's life, we'd be interested to learn a little bit more about the approach itself and the best methods of delivering mindfulness in an engaging way. So I think we, we talked a little bit uh, about it um, you, you had mentioned it a little bit before, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about MARS-A, the Mindful Awareness and Resilience Skills for Adolescents that you um, talked about. Uh, yeah, I mean, let me, let me take something that you said uh, before we even talk about MARS-A, just kind of the general approach that you, that you mentioned. Um, because a, a lot of people, uh, you know, they're adults, they're parents, they're teachers, they're clinicians, and they say, you know, how do I get my, this kid interested in mindfulness? And, you know, my question back to them is, well, are you practicing mindfulness? What does mindfulness look like in your own life? Because an adolescent uh, is highly relational, and they learn from people they have a positive relationship with, uh, and they're also highly attuned to authenticity. And so if an adult is asking them to do something, but the adult themselves is not doing that thing, the teenager is going to experience that as hypocrisy. They're going to experience that as disrespect. If the message is do, uh, do as I say, not as I do. The message is take my advice, I'm not using it. And that doesn't go very well for teenagers. So I think the most important thing, you know, even before talking about something like Mars A or any particular curriculum, any particular meditation, any particular practice, the more important thing is having an authentic relationship with the teen. And when it comes to mindfulness, the authenticity comes from the adult having their own experience with mindfulness first. Uh, so I think that's really important for any adult who wants to offer mindfulness. And that is the foundation of our MARS program too. Um, and that's the foundation of the programs that MARS is developed from. So MARS A, it stands for Mindful Awareness and Resilience Skills for Adolescents. And it, it is developed from things like Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR, developed by John Kabat-Zinn as well as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, MBCT, developed by people like uh, Zindel Siegel and, uh, and his colleagues. And in both of those uh, interventions, the mindfulness practice embodied mindfulness presence of the facilitator is a core ingredient. And it's the same with Marse. 
Uh, and then other things that we've done with Mars A, uh, we think about who we're, targeted, uh, we're targeting. And Mars A is for adolescents who have psychological distress, anxiety or depressive symptoms with or without co-occurring health conditions like chronic pain or other chronic illness. And it's for age 15 to 19. And what we've done is we've taken core practices out of MBSR, MBCT, as well as our own clinical practice. And I developed this with Dr. Jake Locke, who's a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Vancouver. Uh, and we've taken our own clinical experience as well as our own mindfulness experience, blended in with elements of MBSR and MBCT to create this curriculum really geared uh, specifically towards teenagers. Um, all right, thank you for sharing that with us. And do you, so how does a typical course of um, Mars A look like? Is it more of an individual practice for the adolescent? Do they have any group sort of therapies? Yeah, Mars A is, is for a group. Uh, and the group container is actually really helpful and really important uh, because teenagers learn in groups. They're social learners and they also learn from each other. And the connectedness, the positive peer connectedness is, a, is a, an important protective factor for teenagers. Uh, and um, we also really try to uh, create a mindful community among the teenagers. So um, ideally, mindfulness is not an individual affair, but it's a community affair. It's not something that we do in isolation, but it's something that we practice in community. And I've always practiced mindfulness in community. My own background in mindfulness is with uh, the uh, Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, a Buddhist teacher uh, who really uh, was instrumental in bringing mindfulness to the West. And he really emphasizes the importance of community uh, and mindful community and mindfulness practice is not solely an individual affair. So we try to bring that spirit into Mars A as well. Uh, so we have an eight week group course and it's uh, a small group. It's uh, between 10 and 15 teenagers. Uh, historically, it's been done in person, but in recent years, we're doing it virtually, partly because of COVID. But even before COVID, some of our colleagues uh, in Toronto had piloted uh, doing Mars A uh, virtually uh, over the last few years, and it's been highly successful. Uh, one of my colleagues is now in Montreal, Dr. Nicholas Chadi. So he's someone uh, who's also very worth getting to know. He's an adolescent medicine doctor at Saint Justine. Uh, and what we do in the group, uh, we spend um, probably about half the time doing formal meditations. The meditations are similar things that would be done in MBSR or MBCT. They include sitting meditation, walking meditation, body scans, mindful movements. Uh, they're adapted for teenagers. They tend to be shorter. Uh, the language is a little bit different. Certainly the facilitator brings in their own personal style, their own clinical experience as well. So all of the Mars A facilitators need to be skilled in working with young people. Um, and then we spend uh, about the other half of the time doing uh, inquiry and checking in. And, and this is where we talk with the young people and the young people really are doing as much of the sharing as possible. So the facilitators are doing as little as possible. Uh, and the young people are sharing about their own experiences, both with the formal meditations, but actually more importantly, with the informal practices that we're doing and how they're using mindfulness in their own life. Uh, and each week has a certain theme. So the first few weeks are really foundations of mindfulness and mindful attitudes, mindful qualities, 
the difference between formal and informal mindfulness. But as the weeks go on, we start to focus on specific challenges that young people face. So we have one week that's specifically about pain and how do we deal with pain. We have another week that is about emotional distress and difficult emotions and how do we use mindfulness for that. And then we have another week on our thinking and how do we use mindfulness to uh, work with rumination and with difficult thoughts and and thoughts that may not be true, but that are also are very distressing. Uh, and those are more in the later weeks once the, the core foundation has been established in the first few weeks. I love the aspect of uh, learning in a community because it allows to continue even beyond those eight weeks with the, the people that we've learned and connected with. And it's also very interesting to see how you had mentioned earlier that they learn from each other, they teach each other and they share. I, I love that. I was wondering as well, as you had mentioned earlier, it's really important um, for the adults explaining and, and leading this mindfulness um, that they have a mindfulness practice themselves. And I, I was wondering a little bit about also mindfulness in education. So a lot of uh, like a mindfulness with educators and teachers who are who see a lot of adolescents and children on a daily basis and i i know that you are the board of on the board of directors for the mindfulness and education network i was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about that what it consists of and how it can have an impact on so many young adults the mindfulness and education network is an international organization uh, and really what it is is it's a mindful community it's a community of practice uh, so it's not an agency in itself that's doing its own kind of programming, its own curriculum, uh, going into schools, things like that. But it's a, it's a network of educators throughout the world, you know, mostly in North America, but certainly Europe, Asia, other parts of the world as well, uh, that where we uh, kind of support each other and learn and develop best practices and bringing mindfulness into educational settings from kindergarten all the way through post-secondary. And I think the promise here is that schools and educational institutions are such important places for young people. And also that mindfulness can be brought into almost any setting. And so the, the historic origins of this are uh, actually came out of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings. And uh, you know, he really encouraged educators in the international community to think about how can mindfulness be brought into their settings and, and many other settings as well. But education was one of his focuses because Thich Nhat Hanh has always been interested in young people. So the Mindfulness and Education Network was founded by Richard Brady, who is a high school teacher, retired now, uh, and also a teacher in Thich Nhat Hanh's community uh, and started with uh, a listserv uh, by email and then a series of conferences. Uh, and it's not only for people who are coming, you know, coming from Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, uh, it's really meant to be quite open. And in many educational settings, it needs to be secular as well. So, uh, you know, a lot of the Buddhist terminology and philosophy is taken out of it, and it's really presented as a, as a secular practice, still with ethical foundation. So it's not ethically neutral, uh, but, but it's, it's meant to be more accessible and universal for all people. Um, 
and so people in the in the network come from you know all different countries different backgrounds different perspectives and and really what we do is we just learn from each other and right now it's mostly a, an electronic network uh, and electronic community um, but we'll see where the future goes uh, with that too yeah thank you for sharing that's really exciting and i think um i was just thinking you know to myself that you are a pediatrician and so you are um, as part of your job it's it's building this sort of connection in this relationship this therapeutic alliance with patients who are um, in this in this age group and so I'm thinking would you say there's um, or what would you say is common in terms of those tools of building that relationship with these with these young adults whether it be to recruit them and invite them to participate in mindfulness-based um, interventions or in the clinic when you're speaking with them about their health issues uh, what would you say are sort of the um, best ways to build that therapeutic alliance with them? I think uh, when it comes to my clinical tools, uh, you know, like interventions or treatments, mindfulness is just one of many tools I have. So I certainly use all of the other tools that we have in medicine and in my field, adolescent medicine, including medications, including other therapies, including social interventions, family interventions. Uh, mindfulness is a useful one, but it's certainly not the only thing I do. Uh, however, I try to have mindfulness be the foundation of all of my interactions, and not only with teenagers, but with uh, colleagues as well and with families as well. So this is you know, something called mindful practice. And this is bringing mindfulness into our everyday clinical work. And people like Ron Epstein have really uh, led the way in showing how the practice of medicine can be a mindful practice. And it starts with our quality of presence with patients. And with teenagers in particular, they're very attuned and sensitive to are we really present with them? and present in a non-judgmental way, which is what mindfulness is. Uh, teenagers are used to being judged all the time. Uh, they're used to adults telling them what to do, uh, telling them what they shouldn't be doing. And so when I'm mindful with a teenager, I'm gonna do my best to just be fully present with them without judgment and with unconditional love. Because for me, that's actually the definition of mindfulness, being present with unconditional love. And so when I'm with a teenager, I, I wanna offer them as much compassion as I can, uh, let them know that I'm gonna be there for them no matter what. It doesn't mean that I agree with everything that they're doing. It doesn't mean that I don't have concerns about some of their behaviors if their behaviors are dangerous, for example, um, but the unconditional compassion is still there. And so I feel like when I'm at my best, both in medicine as well as in life, I'm embodying those qualities. And my daily mindfulness practice helps me to strengthen, nurture, and, and grow that strength. Um, but it's a daily practice. It's not something that like you do it once and you're done. Uh, but it's, it's, it's more of a way of life and a way of being uh, and an intentional practice that I cultivate on a daily basis to do that. And to be honest, it's not always easy. I mean, as you guys know, uh, the practice of medicine is stressful. And doctors and healthcare providers are very vulnerable to things like burnout, to exhaustion, to secondary trauma, uh, to things like compassion fatigue or moral distress. Uh, so mindfulness helps me with that too. Uh, it helps me to be at my best, uh, to be a little bit less exhausted, less, less burnt out, uh, but certainly it's, it's a daily struggle and uh, systems uh, need to 
help us to be at our best too. So it's not only a matter of, you know, doctors or medical students just need to meditate more or do more yoga. Uh, but I think we also need to improve the healthcare system and, and really the, the conditions of society at large. So that way we can all be at our best doctors, uh, teenagers, uh, teachers, parents, uh, because everyone wants to be at their best. Everyone wants to be happy, to be well, to manage stress, to have healthy behaviors. That's pretty common. Uh, but I think our social conditions and sometimes our workplace conditions make that very difficult. Yeah, we, I think we, we couldn't agree more. I think it's important to always remember that mindfulness is not an eight-week intervention. It's not just that MBSR. It's really a lifestyle and it's a, sort of a way of living and it can be incorporated into your daily life, into your clinical practice. Um, and just to finish off, so for our resident and medical student listeners who are interested in incorporating mindfulness-based strategies into their interactions with their patients, whether that be pediatric or um, other, what would you say are some essential sort of pearls to keep in mind um, about doing this? Yeah, the first thing is to develop your own mindfulness practice yourself if you haven't already done that. Um, and that's a lifelong goal. It, for me, it's been 25 years and counting, uh, so it, it, do, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, and there's lots of ways to do that, you know, taking an MBSR course, going on a retreat, you know, there's lots of books, lots of apps that are helpful as well. But I would say the most important thing is developing a community. We've talked about that already today, developing a community. When I was in medical school, I had a small uh, group of medical students that I would meditate with uh, on a, you know, not as much as we would like to, but on a semi-regular basis. And then as I got through residency and certainly now as, a, as an attending, um, I have a regular group of colleagues and peers that I practice with. Um, and then secondly, if you want to start uh, bringing mindfulness to your patient population, uh, you, you know, you're thinking about, well, what practice should I teach them? Um, I would say teach them whatever you're working on, whatever it is you're experiencing first, because it's going to be the most authentic uh, from there. It's not about reading a script or reading from a recipe or a curriculum. And, I, you know, I've developed curriculum and mindfulness, so it's not that curriculum are useless, uh, but it's certainly not the most important thing. The most important thing is, is working from your own experience uh, and teaching what you have experienced yourself. Thank you so much for, for sharing your insight with us today. Um, and just as one final thing, in terms of um, any listeners who might be interested in following your work, um, how do you recommend they do that? Uh, well, you can follow me on uh, Twitter. Um, I'm, um, you can maybe post my Twitter handles. I don't know it off the top of my head. <laughs> um, Twitter and Facebook. And uh, I, have a, I have a website called mindfulnessforteens.com. Uh, and then the BC Children's Hospital uh, has a center for mindfulness, which I'm the co-founder of. We're going into our second year now. And our vision is really to bring mindfulness into healthcare uh, and into pediatric uh, work. Uh, both for professionals as well as for children uh, and for caregivers. Um, so I'll send you the uh, website for that as well, and you can share that too. Thank you so much for joining, joining us today and sharing your insights on this topic. Um, we really enjoyed having you here with us. Well, it's been a pleasure and uh, wish you uh, the best in your medical training, your careers, as well as developing uh, a mindful way of living and uh, becoming mindful doctors and healers. Thank you so much. Take care.